Tonight I'm I'm gonna come from First uh, John three. I just want to pick up verse eight, and I really actually want to pick up just the last clause of verse eight, but we'll read the whole verse. It says, "He that committeth sin is of the devil." For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And the part that I want to focus on is, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And I simply want to talk about for this purpose. The general idea that John is talking about in the scripture, he starts off about how grand the love of God is, and he goes on down that whoever has the love of God in him and has the hope of spending eternity with God is going to make sure that he pleases God in everything that he does, says, and the way he acts, his lifestyle. And then he talks about uh, the various aspects of sin and he deals mostly with habitual sinning not just the act of sin uh, and this scriptures not this whole passage is not intended to mean that nobody will ever sin again even if you're saved but that you don't really serve sin like you used to and then uh, one of my favorite verses I used to always bring out is that in this he says are the children of God manifest and the children of the devil. So depending on what you do and how you act on a continual basis, we could basically tell whose child you are. But in this verse, I just wanted to deal with, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. This scripture's been on my mind for a long time, and it kind of goes back to um, quite a few months ago. I was at choir rehearsal, and they brought a lady in who was possessed with a demon and we started working with her and all of this time we spent hours and hours and and there was no success on the part of the saints so I went home and I fasted and I prayed and I searched the scriptures and dealing with demonology and I certainly had experiences with it before and I've seen some successful results and I've seen some unsuccessful results and then I went home and I, I started searching the scriptures because certainly if God says that we have power to do something, that we ought to have power to do it. And if we don't have power, the problem basically is lying within us. So I went home and I kind of started pondering how we had gone about casting demons out. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, is we like to interview the devil. You know, where'd you come from? What's your name? What's your name? And who's in there? And you're having this go back conversation with the devil and the first thing that God straightened out with me that night or that weekend because I was really fasting and praying because a soul was at stake and she needed deliverance and when you're in bondage like that you don't have the power to deliver yourself you need somebody that 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 has what it takes in order to, to take a stand and take authority over the spirit and so the first thing that God told me was that you, you don't sit there and interview the devil. You give it a command in my name, and it has to be done. Actually, casting out devil is not even, even dependent upon whether you have the Holy Ghost or not. Because in the Old Testament, I mean in the New Testament, the apostles came to Jesus and said, you got to stop this crowd over here because they're over there casting your name, casting demons out in your name. And he said, you need to leave them alone. They're invoking my name. My name alone has power. So they were invoking the name of Jesus and they had faith in the name of Jesus, even though they weren't part of the 70. But Jesus rebuked them and said, if they're not against us, then they're for us. So it was the power of the name alone. So by the time I got prayed up and, and God kind of straightened some things out in me and the, the soul came back that Sunday, I got kindly got up all out of my place and I went over and, and started ministering to this young lady and I, and I spoke directly to the spirit I said this is it tonight I said you coming out tonight and you have no say so in it and my my prayer was because 
it, it's good to have a partner when you when you're in a situation like that. And I had already been straightened out by God, and I didn't want another partner coming over there talking about what what is your name and all the stuff that God had just destroyed in me. But God stepped up, and Sister Montague, Evangelist Montague, came on the scene. She told everybody, get back, get back, don't touch her, because, you know, folks think that you got to pour a certain amount of oil. And somebody was telling me, get the oil. I said, you don't need no oil. What you need is, is confidence in the power of God in the name of Jesus. And this devil got to come out. And Sister Montague, she, the whole thing that turned the situation around, and people think that it, that it was the song that she had, the, the lady started singing. She started having her sing, I am free, praise the Lord, I'm free. But before that, she quoted the latter part of this verse. He says, for this purpose was the Son of God manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. And that turned that whole situation around. And I had never looked at the scripture in that vein. So ever since then, this scripture has been on my mind. So I want to talk about the, the manifestation of the Son of God and how it can destroy the works of the devil. Everywhere in the scriptures where God is made manifest, there is something of the enemy that God has purposed in his heart to destroy. Every time that he manifested himself in the Old Testament, whether it was with a prophet, with a priest, with a king, the purpose of God was to manifest his presence that the devil's work might be destroyed. For Adam, he revealed himself to destroy the lie that they believed from the devil's mouth. For Abraham, he revealed himself as a progenitor of God's chosen people, which would be in contrast to the idolatrous world. So he was coming to in Abraham to destroy the work of idolatry. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Now in Jacob, we know that he revealed himself as one who would destroy one who wrestles against everybody and cheats everybody out of their rightful blessings. He revealed himself and he came to destroy that spirit in Jacob. But let's get Mark 1 and 24. Well, let's jump up to 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Number one, he's in the synagogue teaching. Number two, there's a man, no doubt, that probably had been coming to their meetings. But the entire time he's been fellowshipping with them, he's been full of the devil. But nobody ever addressed it. But Jesus doesn't even address the spirit. He's simply teaching. Whatever he's teaching, we don't know. But the spirit in this man realizes this is a different teacher today. The, the spirit knows when, when somebody with real connection with God gets up and opens their mouth. The devil knows the difference of somebody that has real connection with God and real authority. So they say, what have we to do with you? This phrasing is used to show the incompatibility of opposing forces. And then he, the devil uses the term, the Holy One of God. Now, this is a phrase that's mentioned, I, I believe it's 40-something 40, 40 times in the Old Testament. And I think that all but five times it's mentioned all by Isaiah. Let's get chapter 6 of Isaiah. says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it were seraphims, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now this angelic 
exchange is where we get the term the Holy One of Israel. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphims flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. So in this, what Isaiah saw was not the same manifestation that Abraham saw or that Jacob saw. What God showed Isaiah, and this is why I believe they call him the eagle-eyed prophet, Isaiah saw the incarnate, resurrected Christ. This was not a theophany. He saw the real Christ. Now, the thing that got my attention was that the seraphims, he said the whole train of his robe filled the temple, which leaves really nowhere to stand if it filled the entire temple because you can't just step on his glory. So I believe that Isaiah, if you remember when I talked about Ruth and Boaz, how he put his skirt over her, and that means acceptance. I believe that Isaiah is under the, the skirt, under the train, and the seraphims are hovered above it. Now, I don't know why the Bible says that the seraphim stood when he tells us in the same verse that with two wings they were flying. Then he says the angels covered their faces. Why would angels need to cover their face? It's because what God was showing Isaiah was not revealed to the angels. Remember, he saw Jesus. He didn't see a, a theophany of God. He actually saw Jesus on the throne. Now, the Bible says in the New Testament that according to your salvation, the angels desire to look into these things. So what God had the angels to do in this setting was cover their eyes so that they could not see what God was doing for you and I yet. So he says, the angels were crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, for the earth is full of his glory. So it's here where we start getting the turn from Isaiah, and he calls Jesus the Holy One of Israel. So what Isaiah saw, and the seraphims of that, uh, that particular time had to cover their eyes with, now the demons are able to see the same manifestation that Isaiah saw, and they say, are you come to destroy us? Because we realize now that you're the one that Isaiah saw on the throne. Are you here to destroy us before our time? All right, so Isaiah see him as Messiah on the throne, and he's high and lifted up. This is not according to position. It wasn't like, okay, he was 30 feet above the ground, but it is a position that he had been elevated to. He humbled himself as a man, died on the cross, was buried, rose again, went into heaven, and he is, was given a name that was above every name. So he was elevated in his position. All right, now let's get John 12, verses 30 through 40 says this. And I'm going to read from the Living Bible. Then Jesus told them, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. The time of judgment for the world has come and the time when Satan, the prince of this world, shall be cast out. And when I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw everyone to me. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. Die, said the crowd. We understood that the Messiah would live forever and never die. Why are you saying he will die? What Messiah are you talking about? Jesus replied, my light will shine out for you just a little while longer. Walk in it while you can and go where you want to go before the darkness falls. For then it will be too late for you to find your way. Make use of the light 
while there is still time. Then you will become light bearers. After saying these things, Jesus went away and was hidden from them. But despite all the miracles he had done, most of the people would not believe he was the Messiah. This, exact, this is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who will believe us and who will accept God's mighty miracles as proof? But they couldn't believe, for as Isaiah said, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see nor understand nor turn to me to heal them. Isaiah was referring to Jesus when he made this prediction, for he had seen a vision of the Messiah's glory. So John is telling us here, he flat out tells you what Isaiah saw was Jesus. After Isaiah says, send me, in verse number nine, he says, he said, go and tell this people, but ever be ever hearing, but never understand. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused and make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So we see here, John is, is quoting the same thing. And in the New Testament, there is no prophet that was quoted more than Isaiah. And this particular quote of Isaiah was repeated six times in the New Testament writing for a total of seven in the Bible. So how important is it that there's going to be people who see but can't see anything, who hear and don't understand, and whose hearts are being preached to, but they're callous. There's no feeling in them. And for him to have to repeat it six times while Jesus was on earth, is, it says a lot to us. Then it, I, I believe that Romans also quotes it. The time factor that the apostles had. They all had an initial introduction to the Savior, but it wasn't enough to destroy the works of the devil. God took time to manifest himself to them on many occasions, and each time God was abolishing the works of the devil in each of their lives. You saw it with Peter. Because Peter was... People call him a stubborn fellow, very feisty, ready to fight at the drop of a dime. But God kept doing things in Peter's life. And every time he opened up another aspect of Peter's mind, Peter was forever changed. Because what the devil wanted to do in Peter could only be destroyed by his mind being opened up to the revelation of who Christ was. So there's a difference between introduction and manifestation. Sometimes we could be introduced to God, but there's no manifestation. Because manifestation brings about a destruction of God's, of the devil's works. Jacob again. Jacob sees a ladder set up on the earth, reaches to the heaven. Angels descending, ascending. And the New Testament lets us know that it's Jesus that he sees. Jacob gets up from that dream, but he's still Jacob. He's still conniving. He's still doing his evil. He's still doing his dirt. He's still the heel catcher. He's still the grabber. 20 years later, it's not until 20 years later that Jacob gets, goes from introduction to manifestation. So we're never to think, like I said last night, Oh, the house is beautiful. It's complete now. No, you've been introduced, but now it's time for another manifestation because God is multifaceted and he can't be known. All of his aspects can't be known by one person, nor one group, nor one sect, nor one race, not even one country. He is so big and so large. And even what Jesus did, they said the books of the, the, the world couldn't contain it. Now, if all of the books put together in the world couldn't contain it, certainly he is, goes beyond even the scriptures. 
So there is more to even be manifested of God than is what's written in the Bible. But yet we tell people that we have to validate your experience in the scriptures. And if it ain't Bible, then you wasn't hearing from God. That ain't always true because God is much bigger even than the Bible. So there comes a time when what we have heard and seen reaches a point to where we understand and comprehend. We need for the Son of God to be manifested in order for this to happen. This is why worship is so important. Because in worshiping, you release certain things into your atmosphere, into your experience. St. John 10 says, verse number 10, the thief's purpose is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But my purpose is to give life in all its fullness. So what is in the hand of the Lord or in the possession of the great shepherd cannot be stolen. We are in the palm of his hand and no man can pluck us out. We are the sheep of his pasture. And, and David says his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Not because he beats me with the staff or the rod, but the rod was meant to beat off the enemy. To beat off the one that came to steal, to kill, and, and to destroy. But we taken what was meant for the enemy and beat the sheep with it. So he comes to steal. Two, he comes to kill. John 8 and 44 says, For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things that he does. He was a murderer from the beginning and a hater of truth. There is not an iota of truth in him. When he lies, it is perfectly normal, for he is the father of liars. See, what John is saying in chapter 3 is, if you act a certain way, we're going to automatically tie you to the spirit that produced that action. If you're a liar... You can't claim to be a promoter of truth if you lie. And notice how he ties murder to lie versus truth. It's, it's tied together. He, he kills you with a lie. This is why you got to search the scriptures. Because then you find out that some stuff really wasn't all truth. And then you find out yourself, you, you're wondering, why am I dying off here? Why don't I feel alive? Because your faith has been murdered because of lies. Colossians 3 and 9 says, don't tell lies to each other. It was your old life with all its wickedness that did that sort of thing. Now it is dead and gone. So he tells us we are not to lie to each other. And that doesn't mean to, to look out the window and say, oh, that sky is red. He ain't talking about that kind of stuff. You can lie when somebody asks you, how you doing? Sometimes people ask me, how you doing? I've been better. It's good to tell the truth. How you doing? Um, I'm struggling. Well, maybe we could get together and we could pray about some stuff. Or, you know, we can encourage one another. But if everything is fine, then you tell me that there's nothing to encourage. I'm a person. It's a flaw. If I get upset, I'm not one that automatically shows emotion. I like to kind of think things through. But I have a demeanor that says something's wrong. And I might say, oh, I'm all right. But that's a lie. You're not all right. So instead of saying that, you could say, okay, we'll talk about it later. I don't want to get into it now. But it's easy to just shrug it off and say, ah, I'm, yeah, I'm all right, I'm all right. How many relationships does that kill? Because then you send the other person into pondering. Uh-oh, this may have happened, and then that may have happened. 
And then they didn't go on and made this whole thing up as to what may have happened or could have, would have, should have happened. And it ain't got nothing to do with that. So it's best to just, you know, be truthful with ourselves amongst each other. As the devil kills with lies, so the manifestation of the Son of God, who is truth, brings new life. And thirdly, the enemy comes, the thief comes, to destroy. The enemy wants to destroy us, but the manifestation of God destroys the destroyer. Now, I looked up the word destroy because we see this. The thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And then we have our text which says, uh, but the son of, for this purpose, the son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. These destroys are actually different, and it kind of falls in line with what uh, Peanut was saying about David's prayer of don't kill him, but let him be a walking dead man. The devil's destroy comes from the word apolomai. You may remember the scripture in, uh, I think it's first or second Peter, where he calls the devil apollyon. That word means the destroyer. So this word means to destroy fully or to perish or to lose, or to die. But when God says, I want to destroy the works of the devil, he actually means to loose, or to unloose, to break up, to dissolve, or to melt, or to put off. He doesn't necessarily abolish what the devil does, but he looses you from the result of it. The devil wants to kill completely. God says, I want to show my power, allow the devil to do his mess. But then I'm going to show my power by loosening the bands that he tries to put around your neck. So the manifestation destroys Satan's works. All of his plans of wickedness and his control over the hearts of people are destroyed. He might loose the bonds of sin and dissolve the power, the influence, and the connection of sin. All right, now let's go over to one of my other favorite scriptures, uh, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, and to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So here we see a few words here. And then after we do this, we'll go over to Luke, where it's over there also. The meek or the poor, the work of the devil was to make you meek and poor. But the manifestation of God is to preach good news. So meek and poor means depressed, depressed in the mind. Or you have just bad circumstances. The devil can do so much to you to where you, you look at your circumstances and go, man, what in the world is going on in my life? And he says, for the brokenhearted, the devil comes to break your heart. But the manifestation of God's presence, this is the reason he was anointed. He binds the broken heart. This, this heart is used very widely for the feelings, the will, and even the intellect. Sometimes our intellect is broken because the enemy has come to cause a disconnect between what God wants to put into you and he'll just throw all little junk in there, mix you up, and you'd be, man, what is the truth? So even the mind gets messed up. Likewise, it's the center of anything. We call the heart, the soul, the soul, the spirit, and the heart in the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word was often interchangeable. Sometimes they say heart, sometimes they say soul, sometimes they say spirit, but it was all the same Greek word. 
This word broken, it means to burst or to break down or to break off or to break in pieces or to break up. It means to bring to birth or to crush, to destroy, to hurt, to quench, or to extinguish. This is what the devil wanted to do in his plot. He wanted to crush your heart, your will, your intellect. But God says, I've come to bind it, which means to wrap firmly, to stop or to rule, to cause, to stick together, to protect, to strengthen or decorate by a band of binding. Then he says to the captives, and we always quote the scripture, the devil won't let his captives go free. The Lord says for the captives, I didn't come to liberate, but I came to simply proclaim that they were free. Because of what he did and had in mind for, uh, uh, for his church long before the foundation of the world. We never were really bound in God's eyes. We had a perception problem. So we, and, and sometimes instead of saying, Lord, bring me out of this situation, you, you need to say, allow me to see me as you see me. Because he sees the end. And we get so frazzled with getting there. And for the children of Israel, there's a scripture, I don't know where it is, it just hit me, <coughs> that says that for the children of Israel, the reason why so much judgment was rained down upon them was because that they were discouraged because of what he called the way. It wasn't so much where they were going, but it was the way that God was trying to get them there. The things along life that he was trying to teach the children of Israel, the things that he was trying to, to bring upon them to take away certain things out of their spirits, they were discouraged because of how God was doing that. And because of that, he said, a lot of them died. So we don't want to murmur and complain about the way God is doing things. This is why, like last night, it's important to understand who's doing what. Is God doing it? Is the devil doing it? Are you doing it or is somebody else doing it? So he binds us, taken and held as or as if a prisoner of war, held under control of another, but having the appearance of independence. This is what captive means. That you're held under the control of another, but there's an appearance of freedom. You seem free, you look free, but there's no freedom. Being such involuntarily because of a situation that makes free choice or departure difficult. Your choice is taken. Your, your freedom to leave and walk away is taken. So it's, it's almost kind of cultish. The idea here. That it takes away your free choice. When God is all about the free choice. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. I'm not going to force you to do a thing. Everything that you do for me, you'll have to come and do it willfully. When you build my tabernacle, you'll have, the, the people will have to come and give freely. I'm not demanding anything from anybody. No tyranny. Remember the worship room. Subjectivism. So he doesn't liberate, but he simply proclaims liberty. Proclaim means to call out. And this word proclaim actually means that he called you by name. So that makes it then again personal. That he's coming to your specific situation, whatever it is that's holding you captive, that the devil has plotted in his mind and is working against you, Jesus comes and calls you out by name to deal with it. So why wouldn't we want the manifestation of God? Liberty. He proclaims liberty. And this word liberty means to move rapidly. It means freedom. And I like this one. Liberty means the spontaneity of outflow. So it doesn't take 20 years like it did Jacob. When you're ready for God to deliver you and set you free, when you get into his presence and allow him to start breaking this stuff down, the works of the devil, then it, there's a spontaneity of outflow. Paul had it so much that as soon as 
he got this, he went ahead working for God right away. And to the prisoners that are bound, he proclaims that the prison is open. Prisoners is, means to tie, a harness, or to gird, to begin the battle, or to make attack. And this word, uh, opening of the prison, actually is only found here in the Old Testament. It's found nowhere else. And it means that there's a jailbreak going on. The root of this word means to open, especially the eyes. The way to get out of prison is to open your eyes. <laughs> Remember, because he's come to destroy the works of the devil. The work of the devil is that you might hear but not understand, that you might see but not perceive. So the manifestation of God says, I'm going to allow you, enable you to open your eyes. This is why it's such a culture shock sometimes or a shock to us when we open our eyes and we see people for who they are. Now, some of us pop them open and then we see the reality and it's too scary. So we close them back. You can't say that God didn't try to come and get you out. Your prison is in your vision. That's why he says where there is no vision, people perish. And when Samuel came on the scene, the Bible tells us in that day, there was no open vision. Eli was so corrupt. Eli's sons were so corrupt. The children of Israel were so corrupt that God had to use a baby. He said, I'm just going to burst something into this situation because my love won't allow them to sit in that much of a stupor. I'm going to do something to bring about eyesight. The gospel. It does not at once and by a mere exertion of power open prison doors and restore captives to liberty. But the gospel accomplishes an effect analogous to this. It releases the mind captive under sin, and it will finally open all prison doors, and by preventing crime, will prevent the necessity of prisons. If I could stop the crime, I don't need the prison. If God can do something with the evil, then there's no need for the prison. So this is why we got to realize that the evil can't touch us. You're not in prison. You're not bound. Your eyes have been open to what God is really trying to do. You remember the miracle when Jesus took the blind man and he spit in the mud and made a, a, a salve in his hand and he spread it on his eyes. Then he told the man to wash his eyes and when he washed his eyes, his eyes popped open. Well, you know the devil always got to counter what God does. Because this verse for blind or bound also means eye salve. For people that could not see, they would shut the eyelids of the person. They would put a salve on it. And when the natural juices of the eyeball would come out, it would harden that salve. And he would shut your eyes. So we have allowed the devil to put this hardening agent on our eyelids. To where if we wanted to open our eyes, we can't see. But it took God to come and to spit in the mud. Dirt. Now, now he didn't go to the pharmacy and, and get, you know, some, some eye drops. He got what most folk consider dirty. Something that you would never think could heal you. He uses to open our eyes. This is why we don't want to shun experiences in life because God sometimes wants to use some things for you to look and see. And then even with all of the commandments, he said, observe to do it. What is with all this in the eyesight? Somebody said the eyes are the windows to the soul. The reason in Acts chapter 7, that the deacon could say, all right, I'm ready to give up the ghost now, is because the Bible said, I see Jesus. 
Isaiah said, in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. The Bible says when Jesus was preaching to his apostles, then opened he their understanding that he, they might understand the scriptures. There's a difference between introduction and manifestation. I can introduce somebody. You know, people like to play Cupid. They try to hook people up. Some people I just told, don't hook nobody else up. Because you got this thing all wrong. <laughs> no, nobody you introduce get together. But something has to go beyond the introduction. What develops from meeting that person? What and here comes the courtship when a man and a woman meet. You don't know them. This is why we can't say that we reached the apex because I got the Holy Ghost. You, you just really just met. You exchanged phone numbers. You had communication when you got the Holy Ghost. You entered into a relationship, but what, ha what has become of the relationship? Has there been manifestation? This is why most relationships don't work because folk don't peer into what the individual really is. But when you get the Holy Ghost, you want to know, Lord, what do you want to be to me? Then he'll say, I am that I am. Whatever you need, whenever you need, wherever you need, and however you need, I'm going to be that for you. So by preventing the crime, he prevents the necessity of prisons and remove all the sufferings which are now endured in confinement as the consequences of, of crime. That was taken from Barnes' uh, commentary. So to the blind, he gives sights. And to the unaccepted, he proclaims that God is now accepting you. Now, this is the thing that blew my mind. Now, when we're going to go to the other verse where Jesus references this, but he doesn't actually reference this part. And he said, he proclaims a year of the pleasure of the Lord is given the length of a year. Let me read that verse. Let's see, Isaiah 61. Uh, oh, verse number two. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, for the acceptable year of the Lord, that word acceptable means pleasure. It is the pleasure of the Lord. This is why he said, I've come that you might have life in its fullness, life more abundantly. That's given a year. Then he says, and a day of vengeance for our God. Now, all that the enemy's been trying to do through the 6,000 years of man's history, he says there's a year to enjoy God on earth. But his vengeance on the enemy is only going to take one day. So what are you worried about? Your enemy is going to be avenged. God is going to get him, but it'll only take a day. So he says, now is the time to enjoy the pleasures of the Lord. All right, now let's get Luke 4. And here's where Jesus quotes it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind. Now, Isaiah's version didn't say anything about the recovering of the sight to the blind. That's the bound part, the prison part, okay? But Jesus interprets it, you're only in prison because you can't see. And to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, Jesus closed the book here. Because the day of vengeance, we won't even be here on the day of vengeance. But he wants you to enjoy the pleasures of the Lord in thy presence there is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand, what? But we worried about the vengeance part. But Jesus says here, and he closes the book there. I think I'd rather stick to where he closed the book and enjoy the pleasure of God. But you can only do that when you're not under the devil's trickery. Psalm 146. He says, Hallelujah, O my soul, praise God. All my life long, I'll praise God, singing songs to my God as long as I live. 
Don't put your life in the hands of experts who know nothing of life, of salvation life. Mere humans don't have what it takes. When they die, their projects die with them. Instead, get help from the God of Jacob. Put your hope in God and know real blessing. God made sky and soil, sea, and all the fish in it. He always does what he says. He defends the wrong. He feeds the hungry. God frees prisoners, and he gives sight to the blind. He lifts up the fallen, and God loves people, protects strangers, takes the side of orphans and widows, but makes short work of the wicked. God's in charge always. Zion's God is God for good. This is what he came to do. And if we're not doing this, then we're not destroying the works of the devil. This is what he came to reveal himself for, that we might have compassion on the widows, the orphans. So Acts 10 says in 38, Then Jesus arrives from, Na from Nazareth, anointed by God with the Holy Spirit, ready for action. He went through the country helping people and healing everyone who was beaten down by the devil. He was able to do it all because God was with him. So Isaiah 61 says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. For he has anointed me. So we were talking about the the um, the devil coming to God and taking him to, to a mountain and tempting Jesus. Jesus was only able to defeat the devil by the anointing that was in him. What the devil was trying to do was, come on, Jesus, appeal to your little human nature here. You're the Messiah. You know, you, you could prove to me you're God any moment. And they did it on the cross. If you be the son of God, come down from the cross. But he wasn't doing things according to his power. He did things according to the anointing because he realized that if I go through with this, it is the anointing that is going to destroy the yoke of the enemy. The power of the Holy Ghost. Christ cast out devils and opened prison doors and raised the dead. But it was by the power of the Holy Ghost alone. The tempter once tried to induce him to work in his own strength in the power of his inherent God so that he might undo and reverse the self-renouncing humility of his own incarnation. But in vain, all he did was in loyalty to this inward guide who made known to him the will of the Father and gave him power for his appointed task. We always have to be mindful of, Lord, what do you want to do? Even as we minister and encourage one another, what do you want me to tell this person? Because if I get off into what I can do, my ability, my gift, I might miss the mark. And that soul, the works of the devil will never be destroyed in their situation. So what works is the devil trying to accomplish in your life? Ask yourself that. Look at where you are right now. What works is the devil trying to accomplish in your life? Then, what have you done to resist the work? In what ways have you been the devil's accomplice, committing treason against the will of God for your life? If I'm in a situation where we deal with evil people, for example, we were talking about earlier, do I, by lying to myself, oh, that's just who they are, I am the devil's accomplice now to destroy my own life because I refuse to open my eyes. The reason we fall victim to the works of the devil is because we have either forgotten about the manifestation of God and or we need a fresh manifestation of God. This is why we promote worship because it's when you worship God when his presence enters in and you, you actually know that God has stepped into the room where you are, that he has come to help. When the children of Israel cried out, he went to Moses. He said, Moses, don't fear. 
He said, I have heard the cry of my people down in Egypt. He said, and I like the way he put it, and am come down to deliver them. That's manifestation. He was already telling Moses, I'm going to come down and deliver them. So that was manifestation. Your identity and spiritual affiliation is evident by the status of the works of the devil. Like I said, we know who you are by how you act. Okay, and then there's four steps here. Let's go back to Isaiah 6, and then this is my, I think this is my last scripture. Verse number 10. <laughs> I'm going to read the Message Bible this time. Make these people blockheads with fingers in their ears and blindfolds on their eyes so they won't see a thing, won't hear a word, so they won't have a clue about what's going on, and yes, so they won't turn around and be made whole. Right here, he's giving Isaiah the four steps to healing while at the same time hiding himself to the people so they cannot do these four steps to get healed. Isaiah had a job because at the first glance of God, he sees God in his holiness, and he cries and he sees the angel the seraphims, they're shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, for the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, you got to realize what Isaiah was, was born into, because we're at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. You got to kind of go back to chapter one to realize what kind of people he was dealing with. And you would realize that, OK, you're saying the whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah saying, I'm on earth, but I'm a man of unclean lips and everybody around me is unclean. And the New Testament lets us know you can't have unclean lips without an unclean heart. The only reason his lips were unclean is because his heart was unclean. And everybody's heart was unclean. All right, before I read, read these four steps for healing, let, let's, let's get what Isaiah was dealing with. We're going to skim through uh, chapter 1 real quick. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, uh, saw regarding Judah and Jerusalem during the times of king of kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Heaven and earth, you're the jury. Listen to God's case. I had children and raised them well, and they turned on me. The ox knows who's boss. The mule knows the hand that feeds him, but not Israel. My people don't know up from down. You cannot claim to have the Holy Ghost, which is the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of understanding, and then don't know up from down. You're not a child of the king. Not when you have no knowledge, no understanding, no discernment. And he gives you revelation. And I, I guess this week is really dealing with the, the plot of the enemy and how he uses people. But God gives you wisdom to know what's going on. So you can let them know, I know who you are. That we're not to be walking around like dummies. Not that you're to retaliate, but you're able to heal and to thwart off the adversary's plan because of your knowledge, because your eyes are open. I see you. I know you're trying to kill me. I know you're trying to take my joy. I know you're trying to kill my faith. I know you're trying to get me to rely upon you more than I rely upon God. So he says, they don't even know up from down. Shame. Misguided, he calls them God dropouts. <laughs> Staggering under their guilt baggage. Gang of miscreants. Band of vandals. My people have walked out on me, their God. Turned their backs on the holy of Israel. Walked off and never looked back. Some people don't even care where the presence of the Lord went. Some got enough sense to say, wait. This ain't. This ain't right. Come on now. I, I need true manifestation. Some folk just, they don't even want the glory they used to see. Why bother even trying to do anything with you when you just keep to your bullheaded ways? You keep beating your heads against brick walls. Everything within you protests against you. From the bottom of your feet to the top of your head, Nothing is working right. Wounds and bruises and running sores. 
untended, unwashed, unbandaged. He says here they're unbandaged. Your heart's broken and you won't even get first aid. Your country is laid waste. Your city's burned down. Your land is destroyed by outsiders while you watch. Reduced to rubbles by barbarians. Daughter of Zion is deserted. Like a tumbleweed shacked on the dead end street. Like a tar paper shanty on the wrong side of the tracks. Like the sinking ship abandoned by the rats. If God of the angel armies hadn't left us a few survivors, we'd be as desolate as Sodom and doomed just like Gomorrah. Listen to my message, you Sodom schooled leaders. Receive God's revelation, you Gomorrah schooled people. Why this frenzy of sacrifices, God's asking. Don't you think I've had my fill of burnt sacrifices? Rams and plump, grain-fed calves? Don't you think I've had my fill of blood from bulls, lambs, and goats? When you come before me, whoever gave you the idea of acting like this? The Living Bible Translation actually says, stop your religious charade. Because you don't care that I left the building a long time ago. You don't want the works of the devil destroyed in your life. When you don't want the true manifestation of the presence of God, you don't want the devil's works to be destroyed in your life. And this is the, just the first chapter of Isaiah. So when he hears the angels say the earth is full of his glory, but God has already showed him this, he had to probably say, wait a second, the earth ain't full of his glory. So he says, who gave you the idea of acting like this? Running here and there, doing this and that. All this sheer commotion in the place provided for worship. Oh, here, here's, this version says it too. Quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. Monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings. Meetings, meetings, meetings. I can't stand one more. Meetings for this. Meetings for that. I hate them. Never heard this scripture read, have you? This is Isaiah chapter 1. Right. So he says, you've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, religion, religion. While you go right on sinning. When you put on your next prayer performance... I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or how loud or how often you pray, I will not be listening. This is how important the manifestation of God is. Because God will allow you to do religious activity and there's no transformation whatsoever. We were talking last night, and I said, we need to start asking people when they come out of service, oh, we had a time. What did you learn, and how were you changed? <laughs> After every service, we need to start asking that. What did you learn, and how were you changed? Oh, but we shot. What did you learn, and how were you changed? All right, so he says, well, no matter how long, how loud, how often you pray, I will not be listening. And do you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. Jesus came to minister to the needy. We are ambassadors for Christ. What his ministry was should be what our ministry is. And when you don't do what he came to do, you end up here. You, you tear people to pieces. You break people down. You don't build them up, you break them down. And the, the mentality of, uh, of the black race, even though we're, we're free and I can go walk across the street and I can sit in the restaurant we just sat in without people kicking us out because we're color. Even though we got in there, there's a slave mentality in the black church that says, 
I don't know nothing. I need somebody to explain everything to me. So when you tear people down like that, you keep them coming back because you are now the source of hope that they can survive. When God has put it in you. So he says, go home and wash up. Clean up your act. Sweep your lives clean of your evil doings so I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go to bat for the defenseless. But this is the verse that we like to quote. Come let us reason together. We like that part. Though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. But before he said let us reason together, he told them defend the homeless, feed the needy, and stop your charades. Verse number 20. But if you're willful and stubborn, you'll die like dogs. That's right. God says so. Those who walk out on God, oh, can you believe it? The chaste city has become a whore. She was once all justice, everyone living as good neighbors, and now they're all at one another's throats. Your coins are all counterfeits. Your wine is watered down. Your leaders are turncoats who keep company with crooks. They sell themselves to the highest bidder and grab anything not nailed down. They never stand up for the homeless. They never stick up for the defenseless. Okay, that's enough. Y'all can read the rest. Y'all can read chapter one. and That's a lot to ponder. And that's just the first chapter. He goes on to say later, I believe it's in chapter 56, if I'm not mistaken, that everything that you think you know about God was taught to you by men. That was the art that he had again. Because these people, they serve me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Because everything that they, they think they know about me, they've learned from somebody else. They didn't get the firsthand information. All right, so back to uh, chapter 6, verse number 10. He says, make the heart of this people fat. Listen to the order here. The first thing he mentions is heart. Make their heart fat or callous. Then he says, the second thing is ears. Make their ears heavy and shut their eyes. Okay, so it's heart, ears, eyes. The order in which healing comes is this. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their hearts and understand with their heart. I'm sorry, hear with their ears and understand with their heart. So... The way we get into bondage, start with the hearts, then to the ears, then to the eyes. But the way to healing is with the eyes first, and then to the ears. You know why he put the eyes before the ears? Because people could tell you lies, but insight comes from what you see. You can't tell me you care about me, not when you don't... You, See, people will listen to somebody say, I love you, and they can run all over town, but their eyes are closed. You need to open your eyes first and then listen. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. So here we see the four steps to healing. Number one is to see. Number two is to hear. And number three is to understand. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord, and then I heard something. When I heard something, I understood who I was and who everybody around me was and who the one on the throne is. But it started with his sight. God has to reveal himself to you in order to destroy the works of the devil. See, hear, and understand. And then you get converted. This is so important, like I said, that it was mentioned six times in the New Testament. Now, last scripture, John 12 and 37. Angie, could you read 37 through 40 for me? This phone's taking forever.
to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Mattathias said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, and be converted, and I should heal them. Once again, the way into the bond of Satan is with the heart, then the ear, then the mouth. But the way to healing, I'm not the mouth, I meant the uh, the eyes. But the way to healing is with the eyes, then the ear, then the, then the heart. Then the conversion comes. You got a lot of people walking around saying they've been converted. But they ain't seen, they haven't heard, and they certainly haven't understood. It started with the heart. Their hearts are hardened first, and then their ears are closed. When your heart is corrupt, you can't hear from God. And if you don't hear from God, you certainly can't see anything. But the way to healing, he reverses it and then says, lest they see with their eyes. Now, you would think that he would put it in the same order that you went into bondage. But he reverses the order and says, you see with your eyes, then you hear with your ears, and then you understand with your heart. So it's from heart to ears to eyes, and then from eyes to ears to heart. It is from the heart that corruption flows and into the ears and eyes. But through the eye and ears, healing can reach the heart. The prophet was the organ of the word of God, and the word of God was the expression of the will of God. And the will of God is a divine act that has not yet become historical you haven't seen the end of it this is why it's important that we search the word to find out his will and I'm finished I don't know if that was all in the right order if it kind of came together right 